You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Talking to Doug Linick today. I'm excited about that. Doug is the head of Think to Perform, a consulting firm that works with uh, business owners, uh, professional athletes. Uh, Doug has written several books on the topics that we that we talk about on this show: what you want and remain true to yourself, moral intelligence, uh, financial intelligence, with how to make smart value-based decisions uh, with your money and your life. He's been leading. Uh, Think to perform for years, led uh, American Express Financial Advisors years ago on to work with uh, Ken Chenault, uh, who's the head uh, CEO of American, uh, American Express at the time. A, a wealth of knowledge on decision making, moral competence, and emotional competence. Got to know Doug uh, years and years ago when I got into this business and followed his uh, career. Uh, he's been really influence, uh, influential on me and how I think about things and how I... This is our discussion with Doug Lennon. How did you get involved in theater, owning a theater? Oh, what happened was about 13 years ago, one of my clients who is a financial services guy, he and I happened to be on the chancellor's advisory council for the university of minnesota morris and you know i knew who i recognized his voice we were in this in the meeting and and i knew who he was because he does this very popular radio show every sunday and he knew the people that ran the theater and the guy that owned it the business was failing and he asked me if i would do him a favor and go out and talk to these guys two guys and a woman who wanted to try to put together a group to buy the theater. They wanted to share with somebody who knew, would this be a compelling presentation thing? And so I agreed to do that. So I went out and heard them talk about the theater and they had a deck, you know, and the standard thing. And, you know, we got done and they said, well, what do you think this is possible to get some people to get interested in this? And I said, yeah, I said, you know, I might even buy the theater. And, and and they said what you know and so so that day that was like on a Tuesday or a Wednesday in the morning and the meeting was early in the morning and when I left I called Jim Jensen who there's he was my controller and he works here at Think to Perform he was our CFO he's given up CFO duties and focused mostly on clients now. And I said, hey, you know, I'm interested uh, in maybe thinking we should buy the theater, the Chanass and Dinner Theaters. And he said, it's too early for you to have been drinking. And I... (laughs) (laughs) He thought it was a crazy idea. Yeah. But I said, just take a look at it, you know. And I said, they don't have a lot of time. The business is going to go out of business. They were about three weeks from going under. And so... He looked at it and I just said, I think we can make 20% a year cash flow, you know, but I, I'd like you to look at it and see if you think it could too. So he looked at it and four days later, we bought the theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, I, so I, I was amazed. I, I was telling Sanger the other day, we, we were, uh, you know, when we first started talking with having you on and I said, well, you know, I've known, I've known Doug for a very long time and really impacted the work that I do and how I think about how we work with our clients and how I think about things as a business owner and knew you'd written a a few books. And then when we spoke last time, you were sort of rattling off a list of other things you were doing. I had no idea. You said, yeah, I have this theater and I have a restaurant, I have a lumber yard. (laughs) What what all types of things are you involved in? So you've got, you've got a lumber yard and a theater, a, a restaurant, well, the restaurant is in the theater, so it's a yeah, it's the largest restaurant in Minnesota. Wow, uh, <laughs> yeah, we employ. You no know, idea. part of why we did the deal is to save jobs. I mean, we we saved three hundred jobs. We have three hundred employees that that work there. You know, but I I didn't want to just save jobs and give money away. I I wanted it to be profitable. Sure. Sure. Which, which, you know, and for the first three years we lost money, but you know, they, they were, you know, when I spoke to the 
when Jim and I got up in front of the um, all the employees, they were in one of the theaters. We have we have what's called the Fireside Theater, which is like theater uh, seating. You know, it's like going to a movie or something. You know, so and then we have the dinner theater, which is dinner seating. The dinner theater is can seat 565 people. And then the fireside has got, you know, a couple hundred or something. So we had all the employees sitting there and and I said, there's two words that are going to describe how this is going to work. Show business. <laughs> and I said, now, I don't know anything about the show stuff. That'll be <laughs> you guys. I know some stuff about business. And yeah. I said, and although the business is not here, its purpose isn't to make money. But if it doesn't make money, it's not here. I said, the purpose of business is no more to make money than the purpose of life is to breathe. But if you quit breathing, you're going to be dead. And if we don't make money, we're going to be dead. So yeah. we're not here to make money. But if we don't make money, we're not here. Does everybody get that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they all kind of got it, you know, so it's, it's not a difficult concept once you right. put it that way. They were all about the show. And I said, that's great. Yeah, fantastic. But we have to make money. And, <laughs> and, and so, like, the first day, we cut 700000 of expenses out of the business because the guy that previously owned it paid himself a handsome salary. He had an office mm -hmm. and, a, and an assistant <laughs> downtown in the IDS Center. Now, why would he need to office downtown in the IDS, IDS Center? He just wanted to be a big shot. Yeah. But the business owed a lot of money to a lot of people, and he was about to go under. Yeah, They were estimating that they had about three weeks before they'd have to go out of business. They oh, wow. shut the door. So we bought it, and here we are 12 years <laughs> later. So well, I was uh, I was just in Sanger's office uh, just a minute ago, and uh, he had your, your book on his shelf, Moral Intelligence. So we were chatting about that, and I saw something the other day was talking about uh, emotional intelligence. And I was doing a fairly poor job of trying to reconcile with Sager what, what those two were. <laughs> so I was, uh, so I'll, I'll let you do a, a better job than I was doing. When you think about those, how, how do you, because I, I hear more about emotional intelligence and, and incompetency yeah. to, to well, deal with um, social interactions than I do moral intelligence. Emotional intelligence is, is, has been around it's been more popularized. And Dan Goleman, who's the big guy in the EI space, he popularized the concept with his book, Emotional Intelligence. And then he also wrote the book as the sequel to that was Working with Emotional Intelligence. And he had been referred to me by a guy named Tony Schwartz. Tony is an interesting guy, and he and Jim Lair wrote the book, The Power of Full Engagement, and they also wrote the article in HBR called The Making of a Corporate Athlete. And he did this, Tony had done this article for Fast Company Magazine that basically they followed me around because I, I was a big user, as you remember, Sean, of emotional intelligence. So we created the training for, and I called it emotional competence. And... And it was interesting when I got to know Dan, I said, I really like your term. I wish I'd thought of calling us emotional intelligence. And he said, I actually like yours better. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because you're talking about using it and I'm talking about having it. <laughs> and, and so anyway, Tony had written this article in Fast Company magazine. He followed me around for like three months. And I remember him sitting in my office in the IDS center and he says, you're for real. I said, what do you mean? He says, you actually do this stuff. I said, yeah, what did you think? He said, I, I thought you, you know, like everybody else, a lot of people talk about stuff and they don't really do it, but you actually really do this. What was he referencing that you were actually doing? Uh, emotional doing? intelligence. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> So, so then Dan Goldman called me and he wanted to, he, and he featured what we were doing at American Express, 
with in his book working with emotional intelligence and then i wrote a chapter there was a book called educating people to be emotionally intelligent and the each chapter is written by a, a different would be expert you know most of them are academics but they asked me to write the chapter on the business case so i did and so i've been involved with emotional intelligence what i called emotional competence since the 1980s you know and in the 1970s i called it coping yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> but i got more sophisticated and so the emotional intelligence is really this ability to stay focused on the goal or on what you're trying to accomplish in the face of competing and difficult to deal with emotions you know so an emotional intelligence is really having emotions in and of themselves are a, a intelligent they're they're not cognitive though you know we use words to describe them so we mistakenly think they're cognitive but they're not so you have emotions that exist independently from cognitive thought you label them so that we so we have anger and fear and excitement and exuberance and you know all of that stuff you know so we can label the emotions and it confuses us into thinking they're cognitive they are not cognitive and moral intelligence is actually a cognitive intelligence you know and we're born to be moral and moral is had been kind of a subset they they sort of stuffed it into emotional intelligence because at the time the word moral was kind of off limits in the business world because there was this group you might remember the moral majority yeah. that they tried to stake claim for owning the you know moral morality which is nonsense and i decided that i wanted to carve it out and and dan goldman referred me to his agent and i said here's the concept because he agreed with the, the the notion that it really is separate that moral intelligence is really separate from emotional intelligence and he actually endorsed the book and one of the other founders of the ei consortium wrote the foreword to the book so the emotional intelligence guys all got behind this and and moral intelligence is really the intelligence to know right from wrong you know and and it really about integrity and responsibility and compassion forgiveness we talk about those principles and we made the business case for moral intelligence and moral competence and again intelligence is having it and competence is doing it and all um probably uh, certainly me most people have been morally intelligent and morally incompetent at the same moment i mean they actually knew what they were doing yes. was wrong and they did it so you so being morally intelligent doesn't mean you're competent as an advisor one of the most frustrating conversations to have is when i point out something to somebody and you know a decision that they're walking down or walking towards and they go yeah you know i know i shouldn't do this i know this is really silly but i'm going to buy that vacation home anyway <laughs> all right, right. <laughs> you know? or, or they what preface worse? it with you're you're gonna hate this or you're not gonna like what we yeah. just did or like well you you knew <laughs> yeah, so why are we <laughs> doing so, good. You know? why did you <laughs> okay. do that i can only do so much here <laughs> yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> well and that's why you, you know we created behavioral financial advice you know that's why i i i actually conceived of behavioral financial advice right around the turn of the in, late 80s early 90s but it, it went way slower than i thought it would we were able to put it into the workplace and really behavioral financial advice is emotional competence for investors yes <laughs> that's basically what it is and our training was for our people for advisors field leaders and eventually corporate people and it had a huge difference we had an independent auditor come in and and look at all the stuff that we had done and by the late 90s they were estimating that the company was making 100 million dollars a year after taxes 
because of the work we were doing with emotional competence. Oh, really? Yeah. So how were they? When, how were they able to quantify? Uh, we had they they do control groups. I'll just give a couple of examples. One of the things that we did is we had a control group, people that didn't get trained versus people that did. And we found on the efficacy of emotional competence training among financial services advisors, they found productivity increases of 25% post-training when compared with a 10% increase in sales for the non-trained group. So when, when you go through the emotional competence training, what, what types of things would you talk to them about in that, in that training that was having such an impact? The big thing about, and it's what Sanger was saying, you know, it's the ability to be able to help clients make rational decisions and for advisors to make rational decisions. When you look at a success formula, you say talent plus skills plus decision-making will determine one's level of personal success. Interestingly, decision-making is twice as impactful as talent and skills combined. And some people confuse talent and skills. They think they're the same thing. They're not. You know, all of us have had some talent and we all learned some skills since we, you know, started working. You are skillful at stuff. You were talented enough to learn but you, that doesn't mean you have the skill. And so what emotional competence training does is it helps us make good decisions. Example, should I make a call or not? <laughs> sure. You know, and a lot of people made the wrong decision. They didn't make the calls. So what we found is when we trained advisors and field leaders, activity went up and the most improvable vital statistic across the board in our company and in the entire industry is activity. You know, so you got activity success ratio and revenue per client. Those are your three vital statistics. And the most improvable of those is activity. You can improve them all. And what we focused on through emotional competence training is improving them all, but especially activity so that people would actually make the calls even though they didn't want to. So being able to stay focused on the goal and being able to do what you had to do, whether you felt like it or not. And too many advisors would make the choice to do things when they felt like it. That's not good enough. You gotta be able to do it when you don't feel like it. And that's why you drive much more productivity. And we found that retention you know, the foundation for growth is retention. And I knew that when I was a young guy in the business. So I understood the foundation for growth is retention. And I knew that when I was 23 years old. Uh, And so when I started, uh, when I became a district manager, the general rule of thumb was district managers uh, could manage up to six people they would lose three every year, hire three every year, and they'd have six. They'd lose three, hire three, and they'd still have six. Well, what I decided to do was hire the three and not lose the three. And so <laughs> we became you know, dramatically more. So there were 600 districts in the company, and my district was the number one district. I was district manager for eight years. Uh, and we were the top district for the last seven of those years. And had we been split in half, we would have been first and second. We took pride in the fact that there was a greater distance between one and two than between two and 600. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's impressive. But it was simple. I mean, and I called it coping. The phrase I wrote down, I had changed it later, but it essentially became, give me some emotionally competent people with leads and we will be awesome. It's interesting to me how the decisions that impact success the most greatly are often the, the simplest and most obvious decision, right? You, you, you mentioned as a, for an advisor to be successful, the most, important decision you can make is just talk to clients or talk to leads or whatever it is. Activity. Um, 
if you're if you're an investor, and we talk about this as advisors, and most advi- I would say all advisors know this, regardless of how familiar they are with emotional or moral intelligence, behavioral finance. They know that the number one thing is saving. That's it. That's the number one decision is you've got to save. You're not going to magically get to where you want to be without making that decision over and over and over and over and over. But how do we actually make that decision? You know, athletes, I thought of while you were talking about how the difference between skill, talent, and success, I heard this Will Smith quote where he said, talent you have naturally, but skill only comes from hours and hours and hours of beating on your craft. The decision for an an actor, the decision for a athlete really is to just go to practice when you don't want to call those leads when you don't want to. That's it. That's it. So how do I, how do I improve my decision-making not with complex, you know, multivariate, really deep business decisions necessarily, but how do I improve the decision-making when it's four 30 in the morning and my alarm goes off and I got to put on my running shoes? How do I make that decision when it's 8 a.m. on a Monday and I need to start calling clients? How do I make that decision to to show up? What have you found that that helped you or or, or people that you've trained make that shift? Well, what I have found is you really have to help them recognize what their emotional state is. So I have to understand emotionally how I am feeling, and I have to understand cognitively what am I thinking, and I have to understand physically what am I doing. And out of this position of self-awareness, I get to make a choice. So I get to decide what to do. I get to decide what to think. I don't get to decide how to feel. If I got to decide how to feel, I would never feel jealous. I would never feel angry i would you know i would skip those i would i would never feel greedy you know i would skip all those but i don't get to decide that what i do get to decide is regardless of how i feel i do get to decide what to think and i do get to decide what to do and what i figured out early in my life and early in my career and i was shocked to find out Other people didn't do it. They didn't decide what to think. And the way I found that out is I was having a district meeting one day and I asked everybody at the beginning of the meeting, I said, I just wanna talk about what you thought about on your drive to work today. And they said, what do you mean? I said, what were you thinking about as you were driving to work? And only one person could even remember what he was thinking about. Everybody else said, I don't know. I mean, I just drove to work. Well, you were thinking, right? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I just drove to work. I said, but you were thinking, you just don't know what you were thinking. I said, I take the advantage of deciding what to think. And I know it's unfair that you don't decide what to think. And I do. Cause I, that gives me an unfair advantage. Yeah, because you, know, you, you know, can I'm train your deciding what to think. So how do you how do you decide what to think? If if you look at your your emotions, which you're saying you you can't decide what those are, those those come at you. What you're thinking has to be directly tied to those emotions or or influenced and impacted by those. Yes. How do you how do you true. either fight against that or accept it or how do you decide what to think then? Well, you, you again, you face whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So, and I created a new word. I call it e-think motion. Okay. So instead of emoting, I e-think motion. Uh-huh. So, so like a lot of people, for example, when they get angry, they say or do something regretful, which yes. begs the question, does anger cause regretful behavior or could I be angry and not behave regretfully at the same time? What do you think? I think definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I could be angry sure. and not hit you. Yes. Or or I could be angry and hit you. I I grew up with, my name is Sanger, obviously. Growing up, kids in elementary school, uh, they would call me Sanger Anger. 
and they would make fun of me and say I had an anger problem. And it took me until I was probably an adult to realize that they were correct uh, because I would deny that. <laughs> I would say they're just, they're just giving me a hard time. I don't have that. that that's not a problem I have. I went through a lot of trouble getting bad advice from people on how to deal with that because I would say and do things that were regrettable when I was angry a lot. That was what I did. <laughs> and I got all sorts of terrible advice, you know, oh, count to 10. Oh, go scream in a pillow. Oh, stop and write down the things you're grateful for. Just walk away, whatever it is. And, and none of that ever worked, right? Because when I was making the decision, when I was faced with the decision, when it was necessary to make the decision to walk away or to scream into a pillow or to count to 10, I was already angry. Right. Right. <laughs> and so what I realized later in life, probably around 18, 17, 18, I realized that the difference between being able to avoid doing something regrettable and not is how angry I let myself get to before that catalytic event occurred, right? So if I'm already thinking angry thoughts and being pissed off at the world and being down on myself and festering in the anger that I carried from months ago, weeks ago, years ago, and then you cut me off in traffic, that's when I'm going to scream and yell and you know hit my horn and flip you off. If I've chosen, and I didn't realize it as clearly as I did today, listening to you say, deciding what to think, but that's what I was doing, I guess, deciding to not think angry thoughts. And then you cut me off in traffic and I'm able to just go, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Cause you know, and that's what you can do. And so the, the key to this whole deal is to realize, regardless of how I feel, I get to decide what to do. Yes. My feelings don't cause anything. They stimulate things. So yes. your anger stimulated regretful behavior. It didn't cause it. Yes. And that's why now you can skip the regretful behavior. You know, now most nice people, when they do something regretful, they say, I'm sorry. And I say to people, well, Sanger, how about this? I know you like saying you're sorry. And I know you only say you're sorry after you do something you should say you're sorry for. So why don't you try this? Why don't you just skip doing the thing you would be sorry for <laughs> and say to the person, you know, I was about to do something that I was later going to apologize for to you. I just want you to know I would have been sorry, but I'm not going to do what I would have said sorry. <laughs> hey, Dad, that reminds me of when uh, <laughs> when you um, will, will sometimes we'll be out to dinner and my dad will turn to me and go, you know, you were looking away from your plate for a moment and I could have stolen your, your chocolate cake, but I didn't. <laughs> And so I just want you to know you owe me one for that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's what happens. So you got it. That's really it. You know, and moral intelligence gets into, you know, I was going to lie and decided to skip it. Yeah. I just. I think that's really powerful. <laughs> I think that's really powerful. I think there, there's a lot of power in killing negative thoughts. I, I talk about that with the team a lot. Sometimes we've got younger advisors that come in and are dealing with a lot of emotions around their own career development, right? Because people come in really excited and energized and they kind of, it's tempting to have a lot of expectations for what are, what is going to happen. And sometimes not all of those expectations are met. You know, how many clients I'm going to get in my first six months, how much fulfillment I'm going to get out of working with the clients that I am working with, uh, the type of client that I'm going to be able to attract, whatever it is. And we don't always meet those. And so I've dealt, I've talked with a lot of guys about, Oh, you know, I'm really down on myself. They just, you know, things aren't working out. This isn't happening. You know, I'm pissed off at the other advisor that is sitting next to me at his desk and what he's doing. And a lot of times what I'll say to them is that that's not a good thought. You have to just kill that thought that that's not going to lead anywhere good for you. So just kill it. That it's poison to your brain, murder that thought and never have it again. <laughs> and that, that's a lot easier said than done. But what you got me interested in is 
the idea of choosing to have positive thoughts. Yes, you can decide what to think. You know, and the thing about people, you know, one of the things I've observed is that frequently people who say negative things will often describe themselves as being realists. I'm just being realistic. It sounds like you're being negative. No, I'm, I'm just being realistic. As if somehow negative is more real than positive. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. Know, yeah. you know, you can be positive and that's real. The interesting thing about our brains is it's a linear thinking instrument. We think one thought at a time. Now we think fast. So within a short period of time, we can think many things, but we think one thought at a time. And I can choose to think what I want to think. I can decide what I want to think about, and I can decide what I want to think about what I'm thinking about. So I, I get to make those choices. That's up to me. And sure. no one causes me to think. I decide what to think. I decide what to do. So when I'm driving to the office back in the day, I was always deciding what to think. I used my drive time to think about what I wanted to think about. Sure. <laughs> I didn't just drive along and see billboards and, and listen to the songs. You know, sometimes I did. Sometimes I, you know, I took the mindless route. But I knew that didn't help me much other than, re, you know, it was relaxing. But mostly I used the, the, the time to decide what to think. And, and it wasn't always about work. It was, I was a, a really competitive foosball player, oddly enough. And I'd be thinking about my push shot or my pull shot or whatever it was. And my partner, I didn't play with him, but he won the national championship and we, we, we would hold the, the table all night long, and, you know, get, we'd take on all comers. And my best song uh, was a Doobie Brothers song. I could never lose when Old Black Water was on. I could play, <laughs> I, that was my, my tune and my song. And I played extremely well, you know. And when I played with this guy, he was a better forward than I was. So I'd play goalie. Uh, when I played with anybody else, I was the forward. <laughs> so he was a little better than me. And so uh, the, uh, you know, when you're talking about thinking about what you think about it, in, you know, Sanger, I think you were bringing up this point, but when, when you get to a state of heightened emotions, you know, I could go in with best intentions today and think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to decide what I'm going to think about, but at these heightened emotion states, that becomes more challenging. Well, that's why you have to practice when you're not in the heightened state. Yeah. You know, so we call it the freeze game. So you, you have to practice paying attention to yourself so that you get used to it. One of the guys that helped our, develop our, our emotional competence training at what was IDS and then American Express Financial Advisors was one of the founders of this company, Think to Perform. At that time, we were called Lennox Aberman when we started the company. And Rick Aberman is the sports psychologist uh, who's an expert in emotional intelligence and emotional competence. And, and he works with professional athletes, collegiate athletes. Uh, and he had been the director of performance until he, he started working as the director of performance for the Minnesota Twins. And he would work with the baseball pitchers and he would teach them how to play the freeze game, which is what am I thinking? How am I feeling emotionally? What am I doing? And practice that over and over again so that you could get in the moment so that when they're on the mound and there's two outs in the bottom of the ninth and the bases are loaded, and they have a one run lead, they cannot walk the guy or they lose or they get tied. They cannot give up a base hit or they lose, mm. you know, so they got to be in the moment, yes. you know, and you've got to be focused on that moment right now. 
not what if I walk them? You can't. Those are the. You can't be talking to yourself like that. So you've got to be prepared for that moment. And and if you're prepared for the moment, and that's the best ones are, they're going to outperform the other one. You look at these guys that make stupid plays in football at the you know in the fourth quarter, they get a you know a a stupid penalty. They get unnecessary roughness. They step sure. on somebody. You know, they do dumb things. That's a decision. Great football player, dumb decision maker, lose the game. You know, and so you've got to be practiced and ready to have this happen. We did some work for uh, the Minnesota Vikings, actually, and we just teach them stuff like this. So this is the same thing for everybody. It's it's you've yeah. got to you've got to learn how to how to perform in difficult moments. And so you've got to be able to, you know, manage yourself and manage that emotion. But if you don't practice when it's not a big deal, you're not going to be able to do it when it is. A lot of people think, I'll do the right thing when the time comes. No, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't. It's it's virtually impossible to do that if if you're at a, because you're always going to be at a heightened state of emotion when the time comes. Yes. Exactly right. <laughs> you know, and if you think of this, and you guys have probably heard me talk about this before, but think about this experiential triangle. So you've got cognitive thought, mm-hmm. that's one circle, and and that's the top circle. The lower right circle, I'll go over here so it's right to you. Uh, the lower right circle is emotions, and the lower left circle is physical experience, action what's going on voluntary involuntary thought emotion action when our reality that's our reality so what your 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 reality is a combination of three things your thoughts your emotions and your actions when your reality is stimulated from the outside it stimulates you emotionally first so something happens out here the first place it hits is your emotional intelligence. You feel before you think. And your emotional intelligence is very fast. So it gets activated within 12 milliseconds. There's a thousand milliseconds in a second. 12 is really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the prefrontal cortex, cognitive central, it gets activated in 40 milliseconds. That's really fast too, but it's three and a half times slower than 12. Now, if the emotional intelligence feels anger or feels fear or or feels exuberance, either extremely positive or extremely negative, either of those, let's go with the negative since we've been using it. So I feel really, really angry. It sends a message to the physical part of the brain, to the habit center. Most of what we do, we do because we did. Mm -hmm. And it actually, the amygdala gets what they call an amygdala hijack. The amygdala sends a message that results in the secretion of, of stress hormones that are biologically designed to restrict cognitive thought. I can't think clearly. I was yeah. so angry I couldn't think straight. Yeah, nobody n- nobody's thinking of the consequences of not at that moment of no. whatever their anger is going to fuel. Yeah, exactly right, Sanger. So if you think of that cognitive circle as the sun and think of the emotional circle as the moon, what you experience is a partial eclipse. Yeah. That's where the fight or flight syndrome comes from. You know, should I be fighting or should I be running? And interestingly, not shockingly, the emotional brain cannot tell the difference between a bear market and a bear in the woods. So both of those bears are going to scare you. Sure. But one is a life-threatening fear, the bear in the woods, and the other is feels 
you're you're scared. You're you might as uh, well be a life threatening fear. Yeah, because because it doesn't know the difference. Yeah. You know, and so what we want to do is get to the point where paying attention to ourselves is a habit, so that we can then decide what to think. So we recognize how we're feeling. I recognize I'm feeling angry. I reflect on the big picture and I reflect. They teach this in uh, for kids. Uh, there's this organization out of Illinois called the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning. And it's, they work with kids. They basically work with kids all the way from preschool through 12th grade. And they use the stoplight metaphor to help the kids understand. Red light is stop. I am emotionally charged up. Stop. The amber light is think about it. You know, what do you really want to have happen here? Do you really want to get suspended from school? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. So So you think about it. In our world, I use the four R's. So it's recognize, reflect. I might need to change what I'm thinking. That's called reframing. So I'm going to think something different than what I was thinking. And then I'm going to respond. That's the green light. Red light, stop. Yellow light, reflect, reframe. Green light, respond. Sure. And That's most it. of us go straight to respond. No, and, we go we go emote. Yeah. We skip those two middle steps. You know, sure. the word emotion is derived from Latin term, and it really means feel it, do it. So as an advisor, one of the things that I was really happy I was able to do after going through and, and learning the four R's and the behavioral finance that, that your company teaches is to be able to help people avoid bad decisions um, by help by guiding them through that, right? But for those people, that's only possible because they're having that conversation with someone who, who is at least aware of it, right? Uh, and in, when they're on their own, they may not be able to do that if they're not aware of how that works. Beyond being aware, we have to practice it, right? So I, I played the freeze game too. You know, you can go on, you guys have on your website, you can sign up and get text messages however many times a day you want to get them that'll like cause you to play the freeze game. Yeah. And so I did that. I, I said, you know what, send me six a day. And I get this little text that says, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? And when, when I, when I decided to do it, I thought, okay, this is going to be great. This is just, you know, I'm just going to practice this. I'm going to get a lot better. And what I realized was even the, even playing the freeze game was a hard decision because when I, the first few times I got it, I was, you know, everything was going well. I'm sitting at work just got done with a client meeting that went really well and was productive and I'm happy. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing? Okay. I'm, I'm doing work. I'm, I'm being productive. I'm feeling great about that. Uh, and I'm thinking about the the next opportunity. And then eventually a, a day or two into it, I get one when I'm not feeling so great. (laughs) <laughs> and things aren't going well and I'm, I'm pissed off at somebody or something or, or, or worse, I'm, I'm being lazy and I'm not doing what I, I'm supposed to do. And what I realized was it became really easy for me to not play the freeze game <laughs> when I was feeling bad and I'd go, Oh man, yeah, yeah. Screw that. I'll, I'll get, I got five more today that are going to come through. I'll just do those. <laughs> and, and after doing that for a few weeks and not seeing really any change, I had to recognize, Oh, this is a skill because of course I'm not going to want to do that. Just like I'm not going to want to be calm when I'm angry. Um, I'm not going to want to play the freeze game when when it's, you know, showtime, right. when I'm on the pitcher's mound, right? right? That's exactly right. In fact, the last message I got today, or the, and it came in, was the freeze game. So I get them all the time. But yeah. What, what happens is whenever my phone clicks, I, I don't even have to look at it. I, 
my phone clicks a lot. I, I can play the freeze game, not just when the, when the freeze moment calls me to, because the, it's Pavlovian. I mean, what happens is the click reminds me I should pay attention to myself. You know, yeah. you know and I, how many text messages do you get every day? I get a lot of them. And so you just pay attention to yourself uh, and, and it becomes a habit. And, and you learn how to think before you respond. That's, you know, and then you, an emotional competence is this ability to decide uh, to do something in the third frame of the alignment model. What, what am I gonna do to help me achieve my goal consistent with my values? What am I gonna do? What am I gonna say? And yeah. then you just do it. Like you said, uh, Sanger, when the alarm goes off at 4.30, you get up and you put your shoes on and you go run. Yes. And you don't talk yourself out of running. I'll run tomorrow. The winners are running now. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and the person who gets up and goes is going to beat your butt when the race is on. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. And that was, that was an interesting learning for me because I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't a morning person and I didn't always exercise before work, but I decided I was going to run an Ironman in 2021. So obviously I got, I have to, right. I'm not going to be able to run an Ironman without waking up early and running. And the first few times I, I did it were actually the easiest because I was energized by the, by setting the goal. So even though I had never woken up at four 30, you know, unless it was an emergency, the fire alarm went off, you know, or maybe I was going on a hunting trip and I was really excited to get up early and go hunting. Right. But I didn't do it really by choice. Um, the first few times were the easiest. And then the, the, the shine of that goal started to fade because it, it, it wasn't new anymore. It was just what I was doing. And then it became harder to make that decision. And so eventually I had to realize, okay, I I've got to constantly remind myself of why I'm doing this and I've got to have the answer ready. And I've got to remind myself why I'm doing it before it's four 30 in the morning. I've got to remind myself at lunchtime. I've got to remind myself at dinner time. I've got to remind myself when I'm going to sleep that way, when four 30 comes, I wake up already knowing the reason I'm doing this because I want to be a better person. I want to, I want to finish an Ironman. Uh, I want to win. I want to do all these things. So I wake up and that thought's already there and it's easier to just, just power through it and yeah, doing absolutely. that over and over made it really easy. You know, when that's exactly the concept, you played it right. I mean, I, when I was a new advisor and I started when I was 21 years old, I came up with this idea that um, when I would go to bed at night, I would say tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you're going to be the star of a movie. And the movie is about a guy who has your career. Yeah. And the director is going to capture on microphone and on camera, how you handle the day. That's your assignment is to handle to handle everything that comes your way. That's your assignment. And to make it harder, we're not going to give you the script. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> things are going to happen and you're going to have to be captured on microphone and on camera handling it. That's your assignment. Just cope. That's how you're going to cope. And then I would play my play the day. And I was, you know, one of my favorite movie characters was James Bond because James Bond, he could wrestle an alligator in the morning, uh, dust himself off, have uh, dinner with the queen that evening, you know, maybe beat up a couple bad guys uh, in the middle. And he just handling it all really well and just would dust off his uh, tuxedo and away he'd go. So I said, I'm, I'm that guy. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I would handle day, every day. So the whole thing was about deciding how I'm going to handle whatever happens. And I would think about 
came up with all these concepts, one of which was the uh, comfort zone theory. And the comfort zone theory basically says you got your hands parallel uh, and they're parallel to the floor and there's a space between your, your hands. In between that space is what you're comfortable with. And above the top hand are things that are really good, but it's uncomfortably good. Sure. And, and below, things are really bad and they're uncomfortably bad. And in the middle is, is what you're comfortable with. And what I would decide I had to do in this movie is expand my comfort zone. So I could have something really, really good happen to me and it wouldn't stop me. I would just keep going. You know, because what I discovered is in this business, when people did something really well, they would frequently stop working for a little while to celebrate. They didn't <laughs> want to take the glow off. And when things were inordinately or inordinately adverse, extraordinary adversity, whatever you want to call it, they would stop working for a while. So I discovered getting out of the comfort zone would, would lead to lower activity. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I recognized I've got to be able to win the lottery in the morning and go to work in the afternoon. Yeah. So I can't let success stop me and I can't let failure stop me. So okay. then I started thinking about dealing with success and dealing with failure. And then I would demonstrate how to make a phone call to somebody or how to make phone calls. And back in those days, we actually had a phone that I, I hope you were alive then, Sanger, but these were like phones that you could hold up to your, <laughs> and, and then uh, there was a little thing there uh, that if you depressed it, it would bring back the dial tone. So I would sit down with some uh, advisor and I would say, I'm going to show you how to make calls successfully. And I want to show you how to fail successfully and how to succeed successfully. And I want you to just watch and see what I do when they say no to me or when they say yes to me. So that's oh. all you have to do is just watch what I do. And, and then I would make calls. I'd have the phone up here. If they said yes to me, I would write down the appointment and then I would depress the little button. And then I'd lift my finger and the dial tone would be back. And then I would dial another number. And they would say no to me and no to me and no to me. And every time I would depress that little button and sure enough, the dial tone came back. I said, it was, it was a remarkable instrument. I didn't have to hang up the phone for five minutes to get the dial tone. All I had to do is press that little button and there would be the dial tone. I said, wow. <laughs> and then we'd get done and I'd say, what did you notice? I didn't notice anything. Well, what did you notice when, when they said no to me? You made another call. What did you notice when they said yes to me? You made another call. I said, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's that it. Secret. Mike Alexander, who has been with the company for over 50 years, he called me the other day and he said, I was thinking about you. And I remember what you taught me. I said, what's that? He said, you, you, you said, there's only three things that you have to do. He said, you have to get leads, you have to call leads, and you have to ask them for things. He said, I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's the same in any business, right? Yeah, any, yeah. any business. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it that's doesn't that's matter the same in my business. Yeah, it doesn't, say, it doesn't matter what industry. You know, you, you were talking about it, the freeze game and sort of acknowledging what your emotion, you know, what emotions are coming in. And I, I'm this group that we meet once a, a month and we're all bus different business owners, a variety of business, about eight of us. And one of the first things we do before we start meeting is we, we kind of go around and the idea is to say one word that expresses the feelings that you're having uh, right now, what are you feeling right now? So it's it's sort of a, a group participation of this freeze game. <laughs> so we're going around and people are sharing their one word feeling uh, to kind of start the meeting. And this one guy says, uh, "Harried." I said, what, "What do you what do you mean?" He goes, "Oh my uh, my word is 
busy, uh, busy. And he kind of looks over to the next person, you know, to give their feeling. And I <laughs> kind of stopped and I said, busy isn't a feeling. It, it, uh, it, it got a little frustrated with it because, because I, with me, because I, I made him stop and really reflect on it. And, and, uh, the point I was making to him is we can't be good business leaders to recognize what is happening in with our employees and, and what they're going through. We, we can't lead them through their emotional competency uh, or through to emotional competency. If, if we don't have it ourselves, if, if we can't, figure out what we're feeling. If we're deflecting it, we're not in touch with it. We don't know it. We cannot do that with others. And I said it, and at the heart of what we're supposed to be doing is leading others. And we can't do that effectively. And so, uh, you know, so I, I got a lot out of what you were saying earlier with uh, sort of getting in touch with what those feelings are. And a lot of times we don't, we don't want to do those uh, as, uh, as men, we don't, we don't want to, think about our feelings and we want to deflect it and uh, but it's important to recognize what they are you know there is a gender difference in predisposition to emotional intelligence and women are more predisposed to be emotionally intelligent than our men but men can get there but we we have to work a little bit harder you know most men think there are like five emotions uh and I actually have, I carry around with me. It's always with me. I have a little card like this and a big one. This is a feeling word vocabulary. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of feelings. There's more than five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as an example, today, right now, I'm feeling clever. I'm, I'm feeling sharp. I feel a little, a little funny. I feel impish, a little impish, yeah. you know? And so I use this to get a, an exact term that expresses how I'm feeling. It's called linguistic labeling. And, and the more precise you can be. Now, what's wonderful about this is the process of labeling your emotion actually engages your cognitive brain. And labeling it accurately. Labeling it accurately. You know, so I feel cheerful right now. I feel confident. I feel encouraged. You know, I just having this conversation is, is encouraging. I'm very engaged. It, it's really important to be precise with those emotions. I remember my English teacher in 10th grade, his name was Marvin Van, and he had probably the biggest vocabulary I ever heard. Um, of anyone I've ever met. And one day he was talking and, and pontificating about something. And one of the students said, Mr. Van, why are you always using big words? You act like you're smart. And, and he goes, I don't do it to be smart. I do it to be precise. And that stuck with me. One of the things that I I've noticed as I try to be more emotionally intelligent is the more accurate I can describe my emotions to myself, the more I'm able to reflect upon them effectively and easier it becomes to, to reframe them. Because if I simply say I'm angry, you know, we talked about anger earlier. Well, I'm rarely ever just angry. You know, maybe I'm frustrated. Maybe I'm insulted. Yes. And, and those are different. Those they are very are different. Or, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, in the big bucket, angry, as an example, uh, strangled, furious, seething, enraged, hostile, vengeful, incensed, abused, hateful, humiliated, sabotaged, betrayed, repulsed, rebellious, pissed off, outraged, fuming, exploited, throttled, mad, spiteful, patronized, vindictive, and so on. There's a lot of words under that bucket, angry. I mean, interestingly enough, angry and sad have the most words. Yeah. Angry is the longest. And, and they're all so, di they're all different. You know, the, the, there's a reason there are those different words because they mean something different. And 
I have found that this is a skill that that you have to develop is is figuring out what is that mo you know am I embarrassed or am I you know am, am I uh, frustrated or uh, you know whatever it is yeah uh, and I keep asking the question okay well if, if I'm angry why am I angry using one of those other words not 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 the cause of the anger but why is the emotion that i'm feeling as a reaction to what happened why is that emotion anger oh i'm angry because i am frustrated why am i frustrated because i'm you know feeling failure or and that makes me embarrassed or you know and so you can really dig deeper into it and i have found that for me figuring out what are those core emotions, not the big one, like anger or happy or, you know, whatever it is, but the subsets digging down a few levels helps me figure out what is going on in my thoughts so that I can reconcile those with the actions that I'm, that I want to take so I can make better decisions. Cause it's, you know, that that's all what we're trying to do is to figure out how do we create a framework for, better decision-making by getting better at the skill of decision-making so that it's yes. not just reactive. Yes, because decision-making, as we said earlier, has more than twice as much impact on our performance than talent and skills combined. If I'm a very talented, very skillful person and a poor decision-maker, I'm going to underperform. And so decision-making wins. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, hopefully this discussion uh, helps you know, when we listen to this and, uh, and, and reflect on how the feelings, thoughts and actions impact decision making um, that, that hopefully this is this is helpful for people who want to get better at that. You know, I decided somewhere along the line here that you guys have been recording this. <laughs> <laughs> Should, should we start? Should we say? <laughs> you weren't aware waved. that that was going to happen, right? <laughs> Nobody waved the checkered flag. Yeah. Hey, uh, Doug, how can people get in touch with Think to Perform and the freeze game text? How do people? Oh, you get can in touch? Uh, think to perform is the word think, the number two, the word perform, thinktoperform.com. What did you get from our discussion with Doug? The idea that you can decide what to think. That I, I didn't realize that that is what I have been doing in certain areas of my life. Admittedly, I'm not perfect at it. I'm not doing it in every area. I'm no expert. But there are benefits that I've certainly gained from deciding what to think and deciding how to think. And I think that's that's really powerful to, to realize and recognize. My thoughts are my own choices. I can choose to fester in negative thoughts. I can choose to think positive thoughts. But it's deeper than just deciding to think happy thoughts or think sad thoughts. It, it, it is, I can focus my mind on the things that I want to achieve. I can focus my mind on thinking about on a relationship that's important to me. It doesn't always have to be work-related or pro about being productive or whatever it is. I can think and choose to think about a relationship that's important to me or about a aspect of my person that I want to improve. Instead of simply being mindless, instead of simply listening to music and zoning out and daydreaming, I can be purposeful with my thoughts and that's going to have a dramatic and exponential impact in whatever I decide to think about. Yeah. Well, for me, you know, it was just sort of re reaffirming that uh, decision-making framework around feelings, thoughts, and actions, and how the feelings come in, and that our, our body, or what happens in our brain, can't distinguish between a bear market and a, a bear in the woods. And that to get better at, at impacting our thoughts and controlling our thoughts and thus controlling our actions is we have to work on that skill, is work through the free game, as, as Doug was talking about, and also recognizing what is happening, reflecting on that, reframing uh, what is going on or, 
or how we're, uh, and then how we're responding to that. So recognizing, reflecting, reframing, and responding, I thought was really helpful in terms of dealing with those external factors that impact our emotions and thus our decisions. So that's what I got. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you really enjoyed our conversation with Doug Linick. I consider myself a student of Doug's um, in, in the passive sense. You know, I've read all of his books, uh, learned all of his learned all of his ideas, and really taken to, taken it to heart, applied it in my own life, and applied it in my professional life as an advisor. If you haven't heard of Doug and this was your first exposure to him, I really encourage you to take at least one of the things that you learned from this episode and apply it to your life and you'll be amazed at the results. If you enjoyed our conversation, give us a five-star review on iTunes. If you didn't think we were five-star worthy today, I hope you decide to think bad thoughts about yourself because you deserve that. Find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> you got to record that again. Why? Decide to ba- think bad thoughts? It's funny. I do it every time. I'm not going to stop doing it. It's funny. If you don't want to give us a five-star review, f*** you. That's what I'm saying. It's funny. And and this is staying on the podcast, too. This conversation we're having, so everyone knows. No, you can't Yes. I'm, I'm stopping recording. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Singer Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.